0: Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible or your electronic device with you, turn to or pull up, whichever you prefer, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to cover several verses today as we wrap up our all-in series of messages. And it has been a challenging season for me, uncomfortable at times as I've studied and prayed and. Tested myself and preached from week to week. It's been a wonderful journey for me, for my soul. Many of you have testified the same. I think we all have a better idea of what it looks like to go all in with the Lord. To metaphorically push all our chips to the center of the table and say, Father, God, I am yours. I belong to you. We saw what that meant for Abraham when his faith was tested by God's command that he sacrifice his son. We saw what it meant for the rich young ruler who was told to liquidate his assets and donate the entirety to charity. We saw what it meant for Elisha who burned his farm equipment and barbecued his oxen to pursue the calling God had placed on his life with no preconditions and with no regrets. And we saw what it meant in the life of Noah, who devoted 120 years to a singular task, building a ship in the middle of a desert. We saw what it meant for the rich fool who at death was confronted with the reality that he had leaned the ladder of his life against the wrong wall. We saw last weekend what it meant for Zacchaeus, who made the break with a self-centered life of comfort and affluence to become a true disciple of Jesus. And today, we come to a very captivating passage of Scripture that impresses the single most significant decision that any of us will ever make. And it is the choice of whether or not to go all-in as a disciple of Jesus. There are two profiles that are recorded in sequence in Matthew chapter 26, and they make for a perfect conclusion to our seven-week all-in journey. These back-to-back accounts reveal two basic life paths, and each one of us will choose one or the other as our own. This is Matthew 26, beginning in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Well, someone has said that the supreme act of worship is offering to Jesus something that is precious to us. So what might that be for you? Might it be your time? Might it be your energy for serving? Might it be your money? Might it even be your children? Kayleen and I gave our children over to the Lord in the delivery room at their birth. Later on in their lives, when they sensed God's calling to full time Christian leadership, we emotionally and verbally released them to go serve with their spouses wherever God called them, and we assumed that meant that they would probably live a long distance away from us. And for several years, that was true. Our older daughter and her family were serving a church in Phoenix, Arizona. Our son and his family were launching a church in Southern California. Our younger daughter and her husband, at that time, were missionary recruits to Ancona, Italy. And well-meaning people would sometimes ask us, when our children were all scattered out, how do you stand it? And we were being honest. And we tried not to sound pious, just being honest when we said, you know, we're going to have all eternity together so we feel like we can sacrifice a few years of geographical closeness on earth. Well, it's just true that when we offer to the Lord anything that's precious to us, He gives back much more than we could imagine. And today, as some of you know, our three adult children and their spouses and our 11 grandchildren live 2 hours away in Louisville, Kentucky, all serving the Lord together in the same church. Now we could never have scripted such a thing that we would be able to attend birthday parties and concerts and ball games and graduations and holiday celebrations. We didn't count on that. God is good, but but it's just true, you know, what Jesus said in Luke 6:38, give And it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So I'm telling you, there's some kind of divine law that's built into the human system by our Creator. Like any good father... He's not going to owe his children. And when we give anything to him, he'll turn right around and bless us more every time. You simply cannot outgive God. In his providence, he's not about to let his children get one up on him. And our so called sacrifices are always more than compensated by his grace gifts. And his grace gifts take many forms they come back to us, back to our text. I want to break it down. I want you first of all this morning to see Mary's devotion. Now for the woman in our scripture text, her precious offering was a container of very expensive perfume. And Matthew does not mention the name of the woman, but the Apostle John's parallel account identifies her as Mary of Bethany. This is a sister to Martha. This is a sister to Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus is the guest of honor along with the disciples. And as they're eating, Mary enters the room with an alabaster jar filled with fragrance, probably imported from India, valued at a year's salary. Do the math. This may have been Mary's dowry. This could have been the one thing of value that she possessed. And it was symbolic. She wasn't just pouring this costly fragrance on Jesus. She was offering her life to Jesus. This is Mary's all-in moment. She understood that giving and offering like this to Jesus, you aren't really giving money or valuable perfume. You're giving your life. Well, how is that? Well, it's, it's because what happens for most of us every week. We get up on Monday morning... We go to a place of business, and at that workplace, what do we do? We trade our life somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 hours of our lifetime for something called a paycheck. So if your paycheck were $1,000 a week, if you were ever to give $1,000, you're not really giving $1,000 in currency as much as you're giving a week of your life. Back to God. Your money or your life, there's a sense in which they are actually the same thing. Mark chapter 14, verse 8, Jesus is quoted as saying about Mary, she did what she could. She did what she could. Mary couldn't keep the Jewish leaders from falsely accusing Jesus. She couldn't keep the disciples from abandoning Jesus. She couldn't keep the Roman soldiers from crucifying him. She couldn't keep the crowds from mocking him. But she could show her love for him. She could show her devotion to him by sacrificing the most valuable thing she possessed. She did what she could. And that's really the standard for all of us, isn't it? To do what we can. And some of us can do much more. Maybe some not as much. But we do, like Mary, what we can. And immediately the disciples began to criticize her. It's not their finest hour. John's gospel reveals that Judas was the most outspoken, saying that the perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. But Jesus put a stop to the criticism and he said, The poor you'll always have with you, you will not always have me. She did this to prepare me for burial. And then Jesus predicted that her act of devotion would be remembered throughout the world. And here we sit in southwest Indiana, half a world away, 2,000 years removed. And we're celebrating it this morning. Jesus was right. And the Lord called her act of devotion a beautiful thing. And it is a beautiful thing when anyone seizes an opportunity... To demonstrate sacrificial love for Jesus and we've tried to provide such an opportunity in our all-in generosity initiative many of you have already made your commitment to be all in for the city all in for the world And this will be your last opportunity to see this card. I'm going to project it up here one more time. There are several cards in the pews this morning and out in the atrium. The left side of this card is the discipleship side. And the right side of this card is the stewardship side. But the right side is the the discipleship side. And if you will notice, we've had a number of people who have gotten into the generosity journey, becoming first-time givers. And then there are several others who have moved up a notch or two to becoming occasional or intentional givers. And still others who've moved to become tithers or moved into the realm of generosity. But we all need to be on a generosity journey because where our treasure is there, our heart will be also. He doesn't care about our treasure. He cares about our hearts. Hearts are indicative of. A treasure, rather, where we put our treasure is indicative of where we put our hearts. And so we've asked everyone to check one of those boxes on the left that indicate kind of where we are on the discipleship ladder. And discipleship is what this has been about. Self-consecration, total commitment, that's what it's been about, discipleship. This is the stewardship side on the right side. And every person, we've asked every person who calls Crossroads their church home to fill out one of these commitment cards in the pews, place it in the offering today, place it in the slot at the uh, connection counter just outside. Here's the number we're interested in. Here's the number we're really interested in. 100% participation. Everybody who calls Crossroads their church home to be involved at some level in this generosity journey. And so we ought to have at least 1,500 people who are a part of this journey and indicate it with that card. Next weekend, we'll begin our generosity journey with a First Fruits offering that will launch us off on our generosity journey. And for many, this will be their gift from stored resources. I want to tell you what it is for Kayleen and me because I would never ask you to do anything that we have not already done. And we are planning to give 10% of everything we'll give in the next two years. We're going to give 10% of it next weekend in our First Fruits offering as we begin our all-in journey. And as we take our First Fruits all-in offering next weekend, it's good for us to be reminded that God does not need our money, but He wants our hearts. And money is His chief competition for our hearts. That's why Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and despise the other. You'll prefer the one and you will marginalize the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Why did Jesus say that? Why did he pick that out? Because that is God's chief competition for our hearts. So we don't want to make the act of giving any less than what it is. It is a sacred offering of ourselves, an opportunity to go all in, an opportunity for us to worship like Mary did. So why in the world would the disciples get down on Mary anyway? I think it was somehow embarrassing for them to see such a dramatic display of loving devotion. And why do you suppose Judas was especially incensed? He's the one who spoke up first. Says this should have been sold in the money given to the poor. I think Judas's conscience did a number on him in that moment. Judas knew that Mary's loyalty to Jesus and that her values eclipsed his own. And the darkness of his own selfish heart was exposed in the light of her generosity. And he resisted it. His pride pulled him away from it and caused him to be critical. Here's a man who was one of the 12, but he never bonded with Jesus as deeply or as genuinely as Mary. He had allowed Jesus to become common. His daily exposure to Jesus over time had caused him to take the Lord for granted. He was outspoken in his criticism of Mary because of his own shallowness. And when Judas tried to shame Mary publicly, Jesus stepped in and corrected him publicly. And at first, he was embarrassed. Then, he got angry. His pride was wounded. And I think this might have been the last straw for Judas. I think he decided then and there in that moment which team he was going to play for. He was going to play for team money. Instead of team Jesus. And his motive in calling Mary's offering a waste, that's what he called it. He called it a waste. was likely because as the keeper of the purse for the disciples, he wanted the cash. And when he couldn't get it one way, he would get it another way. If he couldn't get it by selling Mary's perfume, then he would get it from the chief priests. And he went immediately and asked to negotiate a price to betray Jesus. Here it is again in 26.14. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me? That's what he said first. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out 30, 30 silver coins, and from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So in contrast to Mary's devotion here, we have Judas's disloyalty. Have you ever noticed there are a lot of popular names for boys that are included in the disciples? Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, but you don't run into any Judases, do you? It's like no one has ever graduated from Benedict Arnold Elementary School. And no parent names his son Judas because it's a name associated with one of the most reviled characters in history. Judas Iscariot was a betrayer. Only a friend can betray, and betrayal is a very deep and a very personal offense. And, of course, the burning question is, why did Judas do it? Luke and John say that Satan entered into him, so did the devil make him do it? I don't think that's what that means. I don't think the devil has that kind of power over our wills. None of us are controlled like marionettes on strings. We have our free will. We have our capacity to choose. So what could have possessed Judas to be so blatantly disloyal to the Lord that he would betray Jesus with a kiss? Well, I think there are three theories as to why Judas was disloyal to his master. Some have suggested that Judas was angry because Jesus was not a political revolutionary. He was not a military hero. At least one that would satisfy the Jewish zealots. Judas's surname, Iscariot, meant that he was aligned with a political party that advocated the violent overthrow of Rome. In fact, the root of the word Iscariot is dagger-bearer. So some think that He betrayed Jesus just to get rid of him, get him out of the way. Jesus wasn't the leader he wanted him to be. Now, others have suggested that Judas was actually trying to help Jesus to overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom. Judas thought he would do it. Judas thought he could do it, but he was taking too long. Judas was frustrated. He wanted to nudge Jesus to stop talking about dying and get on with building an earthly kingdom. So Jesus was not the kind of Savior he wanted him to be. Folks, I don't think it's either one of these. Although they might have been a part of the story, the Bible tells us exactly why he did it. He did it for the money, 30 pieces of silver. Think about it. Judas was the keeper of the disciples' purse. He looked after the money and paid the bills. But John chapter 12, verse 6 says that Judas had his finger in the till, that occasionally he dipped into their common purse for himself. Judas is the one who initiated the meeting with the chief priests, and his lead question is, we just read it together, what will you give me? He wanted money. And it's actually prophesied in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before it happened, Zechariah chapter 11. And then when reality set in and he saw Jesus arrested and illegally tried and abused in preparation for his crucifixion, Judas was overcome with remorse, and the first thing he did as an act of extreme despondency was to go back and throw the money in the faces of the chief priests saying, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. He couldn't take back what he had done, but he was repulsed by the money that motivated him to do it. And Judas was remorseful, but he was not repentant. Remorse is saying under your breath, I should not have done that. Repentance is looking into the face of the one you've wronged and saying, I should not have done that to you. And Judas doesn't take this step. And his betrayal after his disloyalty, he doesn't return to the community of the disciples where forgiveness and restoration would have been extended. That's what Peter did. He returned to the community of the disciples. Judas didn't do it. He suffered alone in despair until his remorse drove him to a suicidal act. He hung himself. 30 pieces of silver. Now, that's a decent sum of money, but it's not a fortune. And that's the value that Judas placed on Jesus. The other disciples valued him far more than money, more than popularity, more than security, more than comfort. All of them were martyred, proving they valued Jesus even more than their own lives. And in this all-in season, it's been a wonderful time for us to, as Christians, face the question of how much do we value Him? You see, it's not so much a question of whether or not we believe in Him. It's not a question of what we say. It's not a question of what we sing. It's not a question of what we tell other people. It's a question of what we choose Between Jesus and our favorite sins, between Jesus and our comfort, between Jesus and our popularity, between Jesus and our lifestyle, between Jesus and our habits, between Jesus and our money, our possessions, what will we choose? Are we all in or not? That is the question i want to ask our servers to go now and prepare the emblems of the lord's supper and as they go i want to take you back to matthew chapter 26 one final time in mary's devotion and in judas's disloyalty we see two life paths like mary We can value Jesus above all else demonstrated in her unselfish, lavish offering. Or like Judas, we can value Jesus comparable to the price of an injured slave. To Judas, loyalty to Jesus had a price and it was a decent sum of money but not a fortune. To Mary, her love for Jesus, Was priceless. And friends, Jesus demands that we value him above everything. Indeed, he said, He said, if anyone values anything else more than me, he is not worthy of me. So that means possessions, that means our families, that means more than our own lives. If we love any of these things or we prefer any of these things to Him, then here it is. We may kid ourselves. We have no part in Him. Why is that? It's because of the value that He first placed on us to give us life. To seek us and save us when we were lost. To come and die for our sins. To die in our place. In our text, right after we see this contrast between Mary's devotion and Judas's disloyalty, you know what happens next in the sequence of events. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup gave thanks and offered it to them saying drink from it all of you this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus offers the bread and the cup to all of them even though the one who would be disloyal to him the one who would betray him was there the table. That's right, Judas was there. And if Judas was welcome to be at the table, I think we can all be confident that we are invited there too. So if you're here in church this morning and your world is falling apart, you are in the right place. If you've damaged a relationship, you're in the right place. If you're wrestling with secret sin, you're in the right place. If your values are not where they should be, you're in the right place. On the other hand, if you're walking daily in devotion and obedience, you're in the right place. This table, the Lord's table, is the place where we come together to celebrate God's forgiveness and to recognize the price that was paid for our freedom from sin, the promise of eternal life. And the truth is that none of us deserve to be at this table. But we're not here because we deserve to be. We're here because Jesus has invited us to be here. We're here because of His amazing grace. I'm telling you, it was not the Roman soldiers, that kept him on the cross of Calvary. It was not the nails through his hands and feet that kept him on the cross of Calvary. It was his sacrificial love for you and me, his all-in commitment to you and to me. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we have moved down through these verses today, we thank you for a moment of truth for an opportunity to be honest with ourselves at the deepest level of who we are. We visited there every weekend for the last six weekends, and we thank you for the opportunity today to see all in commitment through Mary and through Judas and to search our own hearts. Oh, Lord. Life pulls at us and pushes at us. We move from one task to another, sometimes automatically, thoughtlessly. Give us in these moments around the Lord's table the opportunity to renew ourselves in a commitment to be all in for the things that matter most, the unseen things that will endure into eternity when all else. When all else is gone. And so meet us here, we pray, Jesus, as we remember you with the emblems of the bread which represents your broken, bruised body, the cup which represents your blood that was shed purposefully on the cross for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.